here want to say. Welcome to Woman Unplugged, a podcast of encouragement for today. Let's talk about the everyday matters of life, womanhood, motherhood, marriage, friendship, and more. We're all new to this thing called life. We've never done it before. Tune in to this podcast and be encouraged, inspired, restored, find new joy and purpose as you grow into the woman you are called to be. Let's go. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I'm so glad you've tuned in. This is episode number three of Woman Unplugged, and I'm your host, Rosalie Elliott. I want to take us on a journey today. It's story time. Close your eyes, unless you're driving or doing something that requires you to look around you. In that case, please don't. But if you're able to, just close your eyes and come on this journey with me. Let's time travel. Back to a time and a place far away from here. Imagine a city filled with spices and colors. Different cultures and languages surround us. A city where so many different nationalities and people groups live together. Let's walk through the streets and take in the sights. Oh, the spices from all over the world. Look at these colors. Listen as the vendors shout, calling for customers to come and see. Come and see. The air around us is hot, but filled with fragrances from so many different places. A colorful world of wonder. Wonder and expectations. Curiosity and fear. Like the belly button of the world, with history in the making and destinies changing, as we walk in the streets of this city and gaze on the magnificence of the citadel they call Susa. Joyous music and laughter bring from the halls of the palace. The king is throwing a party, a powerful king who reigns over 127 provinces, a vast kingdom reaching from India to Egypt, a kingdom filled with so many different tribes and nations under his dominion. The king has been throwing festivities for 180 days. Yes, you heard that right, 180 days. That's about six months' worth of celebrations. A time of displaying his vast wealth and the splendor of his majesty to military leaders, officials, and nobles. So, you'd think after 180 days of displaying his wealth, the king would be done. No, not this king. King Xerxes holds a seven-day banquet for his officials and nobles, and for everyone from the least to the greatest who is in the citadel of Susa. A glamorous party with luxurious decor of blue and white, purple and silver, marble and mother of pearl, and gold goblets, each one different from the other. A banquet for seven days and an open bar. No joke. He decreed each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. Needless to say, this king likes to party. As a matter of fact, it appears, many crucial decisions were made while intoxicated. Just keep that in mind as we continue on this journey. Suddenly, events came to turn when the king summoned for his queen to come and display her beauty for his guests. 
Queen Vashti, a woman of beauty. And as we have learned, King Xerxes over here likes to parade the beautiful things he has to everyone. So it was no different in regards to his queen. Maybe the queen's majestic entrance was meant to motivate and inspire loyalty in the men who were being asked to go to war for the king. Well, plot twist. She was throwing a separate party for women in the palace too. And she was like, nope, not today. She refused the king. Why do you think she did that? Beth Moore has a wonderful in-depth Bible study about the book of Esther, and I encourage you to check it out if you like. In said study, she asks the reader what we think. Why did Queen Vashti refuse the king? I wondered if maybe she was drunk herself. Maybe she was tired of his elaborate parties and his constant desire to impress others. The thought even crossed my mind that the eunuchs who had been sent to get her lied and conspired against her. But I don't see any reason for that. A few of the more historical persistent explanations, as Beth Moore explains, are following. Either she did not want to appear in front of a bunch of intoxicated men. I don't blame her. Perhaps Vashti, granddaughter of King Nebuchadnezzar, possibly considered herself to be the rightful heir to the throne and considered King Xerxes a, a usurper. Maybe she did not have any respect for the king. Or perhaps the command was for her to appear unclothed, wearing only her royal crown. Whatever the reason, the queen refused. And the king, enraged, spoke to his homeboys. And by homeboys, I mean his council and advisors. And they said, well, if the queen disrespected and disobeyed her husband, maybe the other women in the land would do the same to their husbands. So they gave him suggestions. And based on that, the king decreed that men should rule their households and women had to respect their men. The problem with these decrees was that they could not be repealed, permanent if you will. And Beth Moore's study made me realize that this could be pretty problematic because a decree for men to rule their households the way the king proclaimed it could be misused and invite domestic abuse. Nonetheless, Beth Moore so wisely goes on to explain, the conflict in this story, which, by the way, is the book of Esther, only one of two books in the Bible named after a woman, by the way, the conflicts in this book and this story I'm sharing with you are not those of gender issues, and making it about that is missing the point. The roles could easily be reversed, something we find in the book of 1 Kings, for example between a queen named Jezebel and a man named Elijah. But that's another story. No, as Beth Moore says, let's celebrate womanhood without emasculating manhood. Hey, hey. That, sweet listeners, is very fitting, even for this podcast. The issues in this story are more so about wisdom and folly, being brave or a coward, life and death. So, what happens next? Let's continue on our journey. Because of the queen's refusal, it meant Ba Felicia, I mean Vashti, she was never to enter the palace again. I wonder if that means more than packing her bags and leaving, but perhaps the death penalty. That part isn't written in the text, though. Well, what now? 
The king needed a new queen. So the search for competitors for the most elaborate beauty pageant ever began. The virgins of the land were summoned for a night with the king. What do I mean by that? Oh, you'll see. It so happened that in this city, there also lived a beautiful young orphan girl named Hadassah. You may also have heard of her as Esther, the name she actually went by. She was raised by her cousin, Mordecai, and also lived in the citadel of Susa. I wonder what this girl felt like. What she felt when she thought of her parents. How did they die? Did she ever know them? What were the thoughts going through her head? Did she feel alone? Her life changed forever when the king's decree was made for many young women to come to the palace to be groomed and prepared for an audition with his majesty. It's easy to romanticize this story and think, ooh-wee, a new twist on an episode of that show with the guy who gives the lucky winner a rose in the end. It's easy to imagine the world's most elaborate beauty pageant with contestants, one more beautiful than the other. That part's probably true, but girls going to the mall to get something flattering from Veronica's secret for that big day, or walking into that perfume and makeup store called Shepora, you know, it's called that way because you walk in with some money and then you walk out broke and everybody's like, oh wow, Shepora now. We can imagine these things and picture this glorious pageant and it's easy to envision a romantic story where the king finds his new true love and the girl basks in her newfound role as queen of a huge empire with all the clothes, jewelry, and luxuries she can imagine. But let's be real. We're talking about young virgins being summoned for a year, yes, 12 months worth of preparations. Yep, beauty treatments, special foods, oils, perfumes, and cosmetics. Young girls, nonetheless. Maybe some had been promised to a man already. Maybe some were in love with that boy down the street. Did they have a choice? How did Esther feel, having been taken away from her cousin Mordecai, the one who had adopted her and raised her like his daughter, losing a parent yet again? My husband made a good point when he said that perhaps it was a great honor for many of the women to be summoned into the palace. What better life than to be auditioned to be a queen? What powerful position? And my response was, the girls that did not get picked in the end ended up as concubines, leaving them no other option to marry or choose their lives differently. I figure it's safe to assume that reactions were mixed. Some frightened, distraught, and torn away from the life they knew and wanted. Others excited and in high hopes for a better future and a good position in the palace. If we like it or not, the point of this audition was to create a harem. Something that causes anger and frustration inside of me. Great. Another man who seems to be assessing women's value on their beauty and using them for his pleasure. Who else is tired of that, by the way? Beth Moore hits the nail on the head when she writes, This story teaches us volumes about womanhood. Sometimes that which ignites us with indignation burns a hole through the wall to revelation. So let's watch closely to see how this story unfolds. The eunuch in charge of preparing the girls for this audition 
liked Esther. She found favor with him. But no one knew that Esther was actually a Jewish girl, something that would be of huge importance down the road. The Jews in Persia at the time were part of the remnant of their people. The Jewish people had been exiled before, and thus a remnant remained in Persia. Prejudice towards Jews was already happening in Persia. They were far away from home, but they were not forgotten. So, back to the beauty pageant. How did this audition really work? A girl would go to the king in the evening and return to a different area of the palace the next morning, to the place where the concubines were. If the king was pleased with her, he would summon her by name. Man, as I read that, I liked the king less and less. I can only assume that once these young virgins lost their virginity to the king, only to be sent back to a different department of the palace, the concubine department, marriage was out of the question for these ladies. Like I said before, not such a romantic story after all, huh? Actually pretty sad. What do you think the girls felt after that night with the king? How do you think they felt when they were gathered in that second harem? Words like inadequate, hopeless, used, unworthy, unwanted, forgotten, come to my mind. Some might have felt strangely hopeful, but I know what it feels like to give yourself to someone in an ungodly and unhealthy manner feeling more rejected and broken than ever. Beth Moore writes, In contrast to the gods of many world religions, our God never asks anything perverse of us. Men who please him are not promised a harem of virgins for their sexual enjoyment when they die. Our God views women with purity, not sensuality. I'm a woman who needs to know these things. How about you? But even in the darkest times, there is still hope. Esther found favor with the eunuch in charge, who took care of her. In Esther, we find a young girl who is willing to listen to the instruction and advice of the eunuch when it's her time to go see the king. Ladies, sometimes we mistake strength and independence for having the last word, or doing what we want. We think the louder and tougher we are, the stronger we might appear. Sometimes, though, strength is remaining silent. Sometimes there is such wisdom in listening to those who have gone before us or who know the field around us better than we do. There is wisdom in restraint and patience. Not only did Esther win the favor of the men and the king, but also of the women around her, everyone around her. That's pure womanhood at its finest to me. A woman who fears God and loves people, who can be admired by both men and women around her. By the beauty she shows externally and internally. Someone who is kind and does not lord it over another. I saw this quote on social media a couple of times now. It's by Brooke Hampton and it goes like this. I want to be the kind of woman who will show up and fix another woman's crown without telling the world it was crooked. Esther won everyone around her over with her kindness and selflessness. The eunuch in charge of taking care of and preparing the girls knew the king, and he knew what the king liked. Esther was wise to listen to him when it was her time to go see the king. And out of all the girls summoned for that audition, for that position of queen, the one chosen, the one who found favor with the king, yes, was Esther. 
this young Jewish girl found favor with the king and was crowned queen. And if the story ended here, we could think happy ending and chapter closed. But it gets worse. And often it gets worse, much worse, before things can get better. Sometimes the cockroaches have to be flushed out before the place can properly be cleaned. One day, Esther's cousin, the one who had raised her like his own daughter, overheard officials plotting to kill the king. He told Esther, who in turn told the king. The officials were executed and the king was safe again. But life continued, and that great act of Mordecai went unrewarded. Thus is life. Sometimes the good deeds go unnoticed, unrewarded. And it might feel like that kind act, the right choice you made, was in vain. But sweet friends, doing the right thing is never in vain. It's a good thing Mordecai didn't let pride get in the way. It's so good he didn't push for a reward. Otherwise, this whole story might have gone totally different. Even if people don't see you, you can rest assured that God does and that he cares for you. And he will use every part of the story for his glory and your good. So hang in there and listen. It will all unfold in due time. So over the course of time, King Xerxes put a man named Haman into high standing. Basically, his right-hand man. Haman, that guy was arrogant. Unlike Mordecai, he was looking for praise and honor. The king ordered for the people to kneel to Haman, his highest official. And so Haman got really mad when Mordecai, being a Jew, would not bow to him. Haman did not like that and wanted to have Mordecai killed, but instead of killing him, plotted to kill Mordecai and all Jewish people together. Talk about going overboard. Haman told the king of Mordecai's rebellion and convinced the king to make a decree that would allow for everyone to kill all Jews on a certain day of a certain month. I can only imagine how Haman got into the king's head, making it about the king's honor and how everyone needs to obey the king's orders to not tolerate any refusal or disobedience. It sounds so manipulative. Do you see a pattern here? Pride surely comes before the fall. The king seems to have been all about his ego, his possessions and honor, and he picked a right-hand man who was also. Continually, the king's advisors point the king in a direction that led to proclamations and decrees that could not be revoked. It makes King Xerxes look pretty weak, in my opinion. Beth Moore points out so well that the fact that he had no restrictions for his guests on how much they could drink during his festivities, and then his queen doesn't show up when he summons her, and yet again he makes a proclamation that allows for men to do what he could not, which is rule over their wives, and now he is advised to remove whoever was refusing to obey his, his commands, but instead of addressing it with the one who didn't obey, he makes this major decree taking events to the extreme, and now the entire Jewish remnant in Persia is to fall prey to a mass genocide. It seems that the king is not thinking things through, strongly led by his advisors versus leading strong himself. And so the king agrees to Haman's suggestions and sends out that proclamation in all scripts and languages of his vast kingdom, leaving the Jewish people in shock fear, and distress. Just put yourself in their shoes. Imagine you turn on the news and you suddenly hear a national proclamation that says that all of your people, insert whatever people group you identify yourself with, 
are to be killed. No one will be held accountable for killing one of you, if you will. Everyone has permission to destroy men, women, and children of said nationality on a certain month and day. If you've seen the movie The Purge, you can imagine a scenario like that of sorts. That's terrifying. National state of emergency. Locked doors, stores all out of bread and water. Horrible. Heyman must have been so pleased with himself. His evil plan was unfolding and the clock was ticking. Misery and death moving closer with every day for the Jewish people. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. Something done when someone was in great distress. Esther heard of her cousin and sent one of the eunuchs to ask him what was going on. Mordecai told him everything that had happened and about the Jewish annihilation that was approaching. He told the eunuch to instruct Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Keep in mind, Esther is Jewish too. Esther, in turn, instructed the eunuch to tell Mordecai that no one was allowed to enter the king's presence without having been summoned. And for those who did anyways, it meant death, unless the king extended his gold scepter. When Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. And man, this is powerful and something we all need to listen to. Mordecai said, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther definitely got the message. She sent back word to Mordecai saying, Go and gather all the Jews in the citadel of Susa to fast for me. Esther and her servants would do the same. When that is done, she said, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. The change of climate here is so powerful. A story that ended with glamour, pride, and refusal to obey turns into a testimony of humility obedience, and immense courage. What is so encouraging, and again, not something that we need to romanticize falsely, in my opinion, is that Esther was not one who foolishly jumped at the task like some self-made hero. She must have been scared. She didn't immediately agree to the task. On the contrary, she told Mordecai that it was against the law. And the second time Mordecai responded, she then chose courage over fear obedience over self-preservation. You know, courage does not mean having it all figured out or not feeling anxious or afraid. Obedience comes at a price sometimes. You can know that even if you missed the mark the first time or you did not respond right the first time, maybe you felt anxious or inadequate, it's not too late to make the right decision. God is a God of second chances and he can be your strength when you feel weak. He has made you worthy. You are not inadequate. He made you for a time as this. So when the time came for Esther to appear before the king, I can only imagine how her heart was racing. Palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. All right, I hope some of y'all got that little reference there. <laughs> when the king saw Esther, 
he was pleased with her and extended his golden scepter. Whew! As a matter of fact, he said, she could have whatever she wanted, even up to half the kingdom. Talk about favor. So she went in there knowing it could cost her her life. But the king extended his gold scepter and she found mercy. He was so generous he offered her up to half the kingdom. What would Esther do next? Take the riches and chill? Accept the favor and bask in it herself? No. Unlike some of the impulsivity we've seen throughout this story, Esther so wisely did not immediately bring her request before the king. But once she had his attention and favor, she invited him and his right-hand man, Haman, to a banquet she would throw for them. So smart, Esther. We do know the king likes his glamour and parties. Haman loved the idea. He went out happy and in high spirits. But his mood swiftly changed when he saw Mordecai at the city gate. And yet again, Mordecai neither rose nor showed fear in Haman's presence. And Haman was filled with rage again. Haman called together his friends and his wife, who advised him to have a pole set up on which Mordecai could be impaled. During Esther's banquet, the king again asked Esther what she wanted, offering her half the kingdom. And once again, Esther did not present her request immediately, but respectfully asked the king if he would attend one more banquet. And he agreed. What wisdom to not rush the request. Was she afraid and procrastinating? Was she trying to make sure the king had enough to drink over the course of two banquets so she, he could be in higher spirits? Well, that night, the king could not sleep. He had the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, read to him. He read about that time that Mordecai had uncovered that conspiracy against the king. Do you remember that? The one where the two officials conspired to kill the king and Mordecai overheard it and told Esther, who then told the king and the king's life was saved? Yeah, that time. So the king read about this, asked if Mordecai had ever been rewarded, which he had not. And so the next day, the king asked his right-hand man, Haman, you know, the culprit. He asked him, wait for this, it gets better and better, what Haman would suggest the king should do with the man the king wants to honor. And of course, Mr. Haman over here, full of himself and with evil intent, assumed the king was referring to him. He told the king that the man that the king wants to honor should wear a robe, which the king has worn, should ride on a horse that the king has ridden on, and should be paraded around the city to be honored. Aight, Haman, the king replied, go and do that for Mordecai. Just imagine the look on Haman's face. I wonder if his jaw dropped the way you see it in cartoons. What irony. But like I said, it gets better. After all that, it was time for Esther's second banquet. During that second banquet, the king asked Esther once more what she desired. Esther finally used the opportunity to ask the king to grant her life and spare her people. So wisely put, Esther. She even explained to King Xerxes that if she and her people had been sold as slaves, she would have kept quiet and not disturbed the king. But she and her people had been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. The king asked Esther who had dared to do such a thing, and Esther was able to point out that it was Haman, the one sitting at that same banquet with the king and queen. 
How brilliant to have invited them both. The king got up in a rage and went out to the palace garden. Haman, realizing the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Talk about a role reversal. And just as the king came back, he saw Haman falling on the couch where Esther was and thought Haman was molesting his queen. Those words were the final straw. Haman's life was done for, and he was impaled on the very same pole that he had built for Mordecai. What irony and what justice. So Esther got the estate of Haman and Mordecai received the king's signet ring, the one that had been given to Haman initially. Esther pleaded for the king to spare the Jewish people and a new edict was made that all Jewish people could assemble and defend themselves against anyone who might attack them. Mordecai recorded the events and sent letters to all the Jews telling them to celebrate annually as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. And to this day, Jews celebrate this amazing deliverance with what is called Purim. Purim comes from the word pur, which means lot, because Haman had cast a lot and plotted to destroy the Jews. But God delivered his people through Queen Esther and Mordecai. So let me ask you this, sweet friends. What could this story possibly have to do with you? There are so many things that we could draw from this beautiful story and from the amazing deliverance But I want to ask you a few questions. Have you ever felt secluded or forgotten? Cast out like you didn't fit in? Like your story was lost? Like everything came different than you thought it would? Never thought you'd get that divorce? Never thought you'd lose your child? Never thought you would have to fight these battles that you're facing? Maybe you're struggling with your health, physical or mental. Never thought your story would be written this way. It is a good, a very good thing that there is a greater author at work. We don't have to write our own story. And he is expert at turning things around. He is master at taking a violin without strings and writing a symphony. Regardless if you are where you are due to your own choices, trying to write your own story and miserably failing, Or maybe you are here now because of the sins and mistakes of another. Someone hurt you and left your life in shambles. Whatever the reason, however broken and incomplete the story is, God is the perfect author and perfecter of our faith, and He can and will complete the good work that He started. God did not forget the Jews in the foreign land of Persia, and even though they were in exile due to their own disobedience and rebellion, God still had a plan. God hasn't forgotten you either in the land and the chapter of the life you're in. You know, I felt like I had missed God's plan for my life, missed my calling. The anointing was gone, so I thought. I was a scandal, used, broken, and dirty. And who likes used, broken, and dirty things anyway? Plan A was ruined, and I was living plan B, C, X, Y, Z, some alternate ending. And to someone who likes excellence and beautiful things, someone who strives for perfection, that was unbearable. I have one shot at life, and I blew it. Everything else from here on was lesser than, settling, mediocre, not perfection. So I thought. And at the heart of a desire for perfection, there is a longing to be enough. 
a longing for acceptance and approval and for identity. We want to be someone. We want to hear that we are good enough, that we made someone proud, that we did not miss the mark. And you know, even though God is not mentioned directly in the book of Esther, he orchestrated it all. I mean, just look at the story. God put Esther in a position of power. She was Jewish. He gave her favor with the king, favor above all the other virgins. God used her identity and her broken story as an orphan girl to save her people. He orchestrated things with Mordecai lifting the conspiracy against the king, not being rewarded immediately. Later on, the king couldn't sleep and he remembered what Mordecai did and rewarded him. The irony of Haman plotting against Mordecai and the Jewish people and then being impaled on the same pole that was intended for Mordecai. Those are all things that are not coincidence, but God orchestrating and writing the story beyond what people could see. No situation is beyond broken or out of reach for God. And even when God seems absent, he is still at work. God used that orphan girl. He uses the lowly. He put her in a position of power, not for her own fame, but to save her people. You know, yesterday I sat at the pool and I found myself tempted to compare. One lady was wearing a bright, cute, off-the-shoulder, ruffled bikini, earrings, and she had her hair in this relaxed yet flattering ponytail. You know, the kind that looks so cute that you think they kind of woke up that way and they're not really trying too hard, but yet they look really great. Another was very well endowed. The other had abs and was lean and fit. And it's so easy to compare. Like Beth Moore says in her Bible study on Esther, it's tough being a woman in the shadow of another. Somehow the world and the enemy have managed to drive comparison so high. Part of it might be our sinful nature, our envy of each other and greed. Part of it is the world that capitalizes on comparison. The more we want, the more we buy, and the more money they make. And part of it is the enemy of our souls, who is lying to us and keeping us distracted from the things that really matter. If he can fool us and lie to us about our identity, we will never walk in fullness and achieve what we are called to do. So, as I sat at the pool, I imagined it was a competition or pageant of sorts. Everyone is hoping to look better than the other. We're all waiting to be chosen. And then I imagined a man walking in the room. Strong, beautiful in a whole new way. So much love in his eyes. There's a yearning to be seen by him. A deep longing for him to notice you. To walk up to you. To see behind the makeup. To recognize how hard you are trying. That behind that perfect eyeshadow and that flawless contouring, there's a girl who just cried an hour ago. A girl who is tired of being rejected, friend-zoned, not called back, used and tossed aside. This deep aching that he would notice you simply for who you are, and that for once you could be enough. There's so many other women around, and a fear creeps up inside of you. Why would he notice you? Why would he walk up to you out of all the options? The other is taller, the other is skinnier, the other is thicker in all the right places, the other has longer hair, the other can pull off short hair better, the other smiles more, the other is more fun and not as anxious as you, the other one is more organized, more accomplished, less emotional, more selfless, kinder, sweeter, 
and doubts creep in as you feel yourself spiraling down a slide feeling less than. Tears well up in your eyes as that feeling of inadequacy rises in your gut and your throat closes up. And suddenly, through blurry vision, you see him approaching. With every step he takes, your heart beats faster. This can't be happening. You're tempted to look around you, trying to figure out who he chose. Who is he walking toward? And with every heartbeat, you realize he's walking toward you. Gaze transfixed, lightning in his steps, and a love in his eyes so deep, unlike anything you've ever seen. Everything around you seems to fade away as you watch him smiling at you. And then he stands in front of you and wipes the tears from your eyes. He cups your face in his strong hands and says, I choose you. I have always chosen you. I will always choose you. And as he holds you close, you see the holes in his hands and feet. And he holds you tight as he keeps saying, as he keeps singing over you, I love you. I choose you. And as his words pour into your heart like balm to your hurting soul, you realize there's no more need to ask. Pick me. Would you pick me? Because the truth grows in your heart that he already did. He already did when he sacrificed his life on that torturous crimson red cross. Even if you have forgotten who you are, like some of the Jews did in exile. Even if you feel abandoned, like that orphan Jewish girl might have. Even if you are not sure who you are, where you belong, or why you were made. God never forgot who they were and where they were. And God has not forgotten who you are. You were made for such a time as this. This is what God says about his people and those who follow him. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Sweet lady, woman, you are royalty, you are worthy, you are a prized possession, chosen, handpicked by the one who loves you first. Thank you so much, sweet friends, for tuning in. This is Rosalie Elliott with Woman Unplugged. <laughs>